and sometimes it's entertaining. I sat at a restaurant the other day. I had my sermon notes out in front of me, interestingly enough. I was working through what I was planning to preach this morning. I was working through what I was planning to teach yesterday at the men's Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount. Ironically related studies. And I was listening to the foolish conversations going on around me. They weren't all foolish. I can't speak for all of them because two of them were in foreign languages. I don't, I don't know what they were saying. And then two of them were in English. And they both involved multiple people talking about specific problems in life. Anything from child rearing to dealing with crises and difficult emotions and all of this. And there was counseling going on. And much of the counseling had to do with uh, words like homeostasis. One conversation quoted anybody from the Buddha to Brian McLaren of the emergent church fame to all sorts of other people of every persuasion you can think of. I wasn't even receiving that counsel. I wasn't even the one presenting the questions. And I came away from that conversation confused about what that person should do because I couldn't figure out what the counselor was saying. And I began to think as I sat there with these sermon notes in front of me, how simple things would be if we had fixed in our minds a few simple, basic truths. That God is real. That He is in charge. We answer to Him. That God has spoken. That God, the Creator of the universe has given us his word to explain how this universe is meant to work and how you were meant to function. That man's fundamental problem is sin and separation from God. Man's fundamental problem is not prejudice. Man's fundamental problem is not uh, depression. Man's fundamental problem is not Broken relationships, man's fundamental problem is not poverty. Those are symptoms of a deeper problem, of a more fundamental problem, and that problem is sin and separation from God. That man is unable to provide the solution for that problem on his own, but God in his goodness and in his mercy has sent Jesus, his son, to solve that problem for us. And that by faith in Christ, we are saved and have new life. And that salvation is mainly about reconciliation to God. So that in Christ, we have peace with God. We have communion with God. We have life and worship and service toward God. If we can get a hold of that, that is a truth that will bring great comfort to those who are afflicted in so many ways in this life. And that is a truth that will afflict those who are far too comfortable in their own efforts and in the foolish wisdom of this world. That's not the introduction to my sermon. That's the burden on my heart that has driven this that has only been confirmed by listening to the demonic counsel that passes for therapy in our world today. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 3. You say, you've preached from John 3 before. Yes, and I will preach from John 3 many times through the course of my life, I hope. My intention over the next two or three weeks, before we go into our next long study, which will likely be back into the book of Genesis, to finish what we started so long ago. 
But before we get there, my, my intention is to spend some time in John 3 considering the doctrine of the new birth or regeneration or what it means to be born again. The doctrine of regeneration is one of the most central doctrines to the Christian faith. And yet, how often do we hear the phrase, born again? How often or how familiar are we with the word regeneration? If I asked you to define it, do you think you could? I hope even just by the little progress we've made so far that you could. Regeneration means to be born again. And yet we don't talk about the gospel in those terms very often anymore, do we? We talk about the gospel in other terms. We often use therapeutic terms. We certainly like to use the, the language and the verbiage that the world would like to hear. And what it betrays in us, in, in our methods, is a fundamental lack of understanding of what man's real problem is and what the solution really is. And my goal in looking at what Jesus says in John chapter 3 is to come to a better understanding of these words and the implication of them in our lives. You must be born again. We need to come back often to this doctrine in Scripture, to this invitation. And we need to let it expose our own hearts. We need to let it encourage us where we are, where we are grieved or anxious. And we need to let it stir us up where we have become lethargic. Christians need to hear this phrase, you must be born again. It is here in considering the new birth. It is here in looking at John chapter 3 that we see something of the reality and the nature of our sin and the reality and nature of God's grace. It is here that we get a solid and reliable basis for examining our own hearts and finding true assurance of salvation. We need to be reassured in our salvation. But we don't find that assurance by looking within ourselves. We find that assurance by looking to Christ and into His Word. And so we are seeking over the next few weeks to soak our minds in the study of the new birth. And our focus is on the teaching of Jesus Himself and what He has to say in John chapter 3. Today, I'm really only focusing on verses 1 through 10 of John 3, but I'm going to read down through verse 17 just to give sort of the big picture of this conversation that Jesus has. So in your Bibles, John chapter 3, if you will follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Better yet, let me back up to verse 23 of chapter 2. I'll make reference to that later. Verse 23 in chapter 2, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, there was a large contingent of people who were interested in Jesus because they saw his signs but they were not true believers. Chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, 
How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. These verses and the verses that follow what we've just read are all about the doctrine of salvation. They are about the new birth. And they are specifically focusing on where that salvation comes from and who makes it happen. So one commentator uh, summarized it this way. The whole point of this text is that something must happen to you in, that you do not participate in. There is no how to be born again. There are no steps to being born again. Nowhere does Jesus tell Nicodemus, do this and say this and pray this. The kingdom of heaven... The kingdom of salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, heaven is open only for those who abandon all self-effort. It is a work of God. And with that thought in mind, I want us to consider this text from three perspectives or three vantage points concerning the new birth. I want us to consider, first of all, the state of the sinner. Then I want us to consider, secondly, the teaching of the Savior. And then finally, the work of the Spirit. The state of the sinner, the teaching of the Savior, the work of the, save, of the Spirit. First of all, we see the state of the sinner in verses 1 through 3. This is where a man named Nicodemus introduces himself to Jesus under the cover of night and asks him, well, he doesn't actually ask him a crucial question. Jesus doesn't let him get there. Jesus is out front of this conversation here, but he comes with a question on his mind. And in the conversation that follows, Jesus reveals the true state of Nicodemus's heart and his true standing before God. And this is significant because to any of us who would have been looking at Nicodemus at that time, we would have thought this man of all men is right with God. And Jesus thinks otherwise. In verse 1, we read, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It starts with the word now. That's a transition. That's why I read the end of chapter 2. In contrast to these false disciples, at the end of chapter 2, there's this man named Nicodemus. He's not a believer yet, but Jesus has time for him. He didn't spend much time with the crowd at the end of chapter 2, but he has all the time in the world for Nicodemus. Because Jesus knows where this is going. He knows what he's about to do in the heart of Nicodemus. He doesn't yet believe, but he's on his way, and God is working in his heart. Just then as now, Bible Belt Christianity, I think we understand this, right? Not all who name the name of Christ truly know Christ. Jesus knows that. But what he is saying here, in contrast to the crowd, he is saying with Nicodemus's heart in mind. 
Nicodemus comes to him. He's curious. The crowd was curious, but this is a different kind of curiosity. Nicodemus is really seeking information. He's really seeking to know who this Jesus is and where he has come from. He doesn't come asking for a sign. He comes and he says, I've seen the signs. We have seen the signs and we can't deny that these are heavenly signs. Help me make sense of this. And the rest of the verse tells us who Nicodemus was and where this question is coming from. It says he's a Pharisee. If you know anything about the life of Jesus and the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees, you find this conversation striking. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were often the target of Jesus' rebukes in the Gospels. This was an elite group of Old Testament scholars. They were respected religious leaders in Israel. They were strict adherents to the law. Yes, the law that is written in the Bible. They took it seriously. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the law of Moses. They took it seriously. They sought to obey it. They were highly devoted to their study and their traditions and their rituals. And this was a constant point of contention with Jesus because their ritualistic tradition had overshadowed their devotion to the law. Their devotion to wanting to keep the law was misguided. They thought that in keeping the law, they would find life. And they were so zealous about it that they actually added to the law of God. They created that buffer law so that they wouldn't infringe on the real law, but over time, that buffer law had also become law. And so they became strict legalists. They began measuring their lives, their spiritual lives, and their standing with God by their actions alone, by their adherence to the law. This group was somewhat popular with the people, but the Pharisees didn't really see themselves as ministers to the people at large. They were separatists. They were separatists from the people. They were separatists from the Roman Empire. But because of their religious zeal, their misguided zeal, and their self-exalting legalism, Jesus' assessment of this group was that they were hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, looking nice on the outside, but full of death and decay on the inside. No inward conversion, no spiritual reality. And as a result, Jesus said, because of all of this, they made themselves and their converts twice the sons of hell than before. Not only being lost, but also now being deceived into thinking they were found. Thinking they had life. Thinking they had wisdom. And lacking the reality. Nicodemus is one of those Pharisees. And this is the worldview that is engraved in his mind. His view of salvation, his view of eternal life was colored by this tradition of the Pharisees. And this is why he will struggle so much throughout this chapter to grasp what Jesus is saying to him. He was an Old Testament scholar, but he had Pharisaical glasses on that hindered him from seeing what it really said. Now, not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, there were a good number of Pharisees around, but he was also a ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews. This is a step beyond just being a Pharisee. Throughout the Gospel of John, when, when John mentions the Jews, he's usually talking about the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the ones who stand in opposition to Jesus. And what he is likely talking about here with Nicodemus is a specific group among them known as the Sanhedrin. The ruling religious leaders. It was made up of about 70 people, priests, the high priest, and some Pharisees. It was the governing authority in Jerusalem among the Jews. So Nicodemus then is a prominent and influential figure, an elevated and respected person in that society. That's why in verse 10, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. So where does the teacher of Israel, where does the prominent Pharisee in Israel go when he has spiritual questions? 
Where should he go? Well, he should go to the Son of God. He should go to Jesus, and that is exactly what he does. So in verse 2, he goes, This man came to Jesus by night. Now, we don't need to read too much into Nicodemus going at night. Uh, the most likely explanation is he did it for uh, several reasons. To avoid interruption, uh, to avoid being seen by the other religious leaders, to avoid tarnishing his own reputation until he sort of gets more information here, and I think probably to uh, speak to Jesus when he can uh, you know, truly give him attention. Jesus, everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds following him. I can sort of see Nicodemus staying on the outside of the crowd and just waiting until Jesus settles down for the night and then goes and, and finds him, kind of creeps out from behind the bushes or something and, and wants to have this conversation. But the most important thing here is that he came at all. He's not a believer yet. But the Holy Spirit is guiding him to the place where he's going to find the right information. When Nicodemus gets to Jesus, he calls him rabbi. It's a title of respect and recognition. It's an acknowledgement that there is something special about this Jesus. It was one thing for his disciples to call him rabbi, but it was a much bigger thing for the eminent teacher of Israel to call him rabbi. He addresses Jesus respectfully. He, re he addresses him kind of as an equal, although he does not yet realize how far superior this Jesus is to him. He's at least respectful. He apparently does not share in the hostility of his colleagues toward Jesus. He's not a believer yet, but he's curious. He's sensitive. He's listening. He's respectful. He's seeking, and that's a good start. And he comes to Jesus respectfully with a genuine question. So he says to him, still in verse 2, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, when he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, who's we? Who is Nicodemus? A Pharisee, a ruler among the Jews. Jesus, I'm one of the only people who's willing to admit this. But even the Pharisees know where you've come from, because there is no other explanation for the signs that you are doing. They don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to accept it. But here's Nicodemus saying, I've, I've got to do something with this. That's what he's coming to investigate. He recognizes that Jesus, whoever he is, has got to be sent from God. It's not specifically a question. Jesus doesn't let him get there yet. But the sense is, who are you really? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For all who ask, receive. All who seek, find. And for all who knock, the door will be opened, Jesus says. And here is a man knocking. He doesn't understand yet. He's not ready to, to, to believe in everything just yet. But you know what? By the end of Jesus' life, he, I believe he is a believer. And it might be sooner rather than later. We, we're not really told... But he's knocking, and Jesus is going to answer. Who are you, really? He's looked at the signs, and he knows. I've been studying Romans 1 lately. And there is no excuse. No human being will have an excuse before God to say, I just didn't know. He's looking at the signs, and he's saying, I can't make perfect sense of this, but this demands explanation. So he comes to Jesus. He cannot deny that these signs are from God. But Jesus was not interested in talking about his signs and his miracles. The point of Jesus' ministry was never the signs. The signs were meant to point to the teaching and to the reality of who he is and what he came to do. And so Jesus takes him right there. He goes there quickly. He goes there directly. He gets to the heart of the question and to what Nicodemus really needs to hear. So in verse 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, or amen, amen. This is divine truth. This is coming from God. It is, you need to hear this. Listen up. And he says this. Um, he, he, he doesn't say, 
Well, Nicodemus, that's a that's a really good observation. Let's go ahead and let's talk about that further. No, Jesus, Jesus takes the conversation and directs it right to what he needs to hear. And he says this, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus knows Nicodemus' heart. He knows the real question behind the statement, and he knows the real need. And so he goes straight to the real issue. And he gives a foundational statement, a universal truth about salvation that applies not just to Nicodemus, but to all people, even us today. We need to hear what Jesus says to Nicodemus. This is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of man's issue. This is the heart of the gospel. Now, Nicodemus was a devoted and passionate religious person. He was intent on finding eternal life. He very much reminds me of the rich young ruler that we read about in Mark chapter 10. He reminds me of the Apostle Paul, who can list credentials that would make any of us feel small. Religious credentials, and he he lists that out in Philippians chapter 3. And Nicodemus, like those other two, had reached the pinnacle of worldly and religious accomplishment. And he's trusting in that for his status before God. And he comes to Jesus, and he's, he's, he's trying to make sense of this one last piece that he can't figure out. He's like the rich young ruler who comes and says, I've accomplished everything, but I haven't quite gotten there. What is that last piece of the puzzle that you can give that will help me get over the hump and enter into heaven? And Jesus is not going to entertain that conversation because it completely misses man's fundamental need. And Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. I don't care how many accomplishments you have religiously, Nicodemus. I don't care how how high of an elevated teacher you are among the people. I don't care how well you know. I don't care if you have the whole Old Testament memorized. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. I don't care how many times you go to church. I don't care how much money you give to the church. I don't care what church it is. I don't care how many generations of preachers you have in your family. I don't care how big the choir is you sing in. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is answering the unasked question. And he is speaking to the most basic need. He is not the last piece to the puzzle. He is the entire picture. He is the entire answer to man's problem and his need for eternal life. And Jesus tells him that salvation depends on one being born again. And with that statement, Jesus flips Nicodemus completely around in his spiritual sensitivity. This statement shocks Nicodemus because in his quest for eternal life, like so many, he was looking for what he could do. And he was, as it were, compiling. He was was loading up his moving truck with, with good works. And he was just looking for the last few things to get the truck full so he can then enter into eternal life. And the imagery of being born again undoes all of that. It's a direct contrast to any self-effort from men. You say, how? What do you mean? It's not a random or flippant phrase. Jesus uses this phrase, being born again, he uses the imagery on purpose to highlight the fact that this is not something a person can do or accomplish for himself or herself. How many of you decided to be conceived? Nobody? And yet sometimes we behave as if we did. How many of you decided to be born? No, you didn't do that. Being born is passive. No one causes or brings about his own birth. And it's interesting to note that nowhere in this passage does Jesus tell Nicodemus, you to, to go get born again. 
He just tells him, you must be. But the whole imagery is passive. What he's doing is he's telling Nicodemus, you need something done for you that you can't do for yourself. That's how you get eternal life. There's no how-to for this. And so by using this imagery, Jesus is actually revealing to Nicodemus the natural state of mankind, of all mankind, dead, no life. He's telling Nicodemus that eternal life is not based on something you can do. It's not something you can add to your efforts and just kind of bring along and arrange this on your own. He is telling him that unless he lays down his confidence in all of those accomplishments and those achievements, unless he lays down his confidence in his own earthly goodness and his morality and his social standing, he will never make it to the kingdom of heaven. He is calling him to believe on Christ alone, to receive the gift of mercy, and to yield to him as Savior and Lord, to yield and accept what God has freely given, not what man can accomplish. This is how Jesus introduces Nicodemus and us to the doctrine of salvation, to the doctrine of regeneration or the need of the new birth. It is a central and vital component of the Christian faith. Again, one commentator explained it this way. The new birth or regeneration is the act of God by which he imparts eternal life to those who are dead and trespasses and sins, thus making them his children. Salvation is described in terms of birth or generating new life to emphasize the fact that it is something only God can do. And it is God's work of making us into a new creation. We don't need to be fixed. We don't need to be helped. We need to be made alive. In your sin, you are not sick in needing in need of an antibiotic. You are dead and you are in need of a miracle. And Jesus is the source of that miracle, that life. Now the phrase kingdom of God in verse 3 refers to the realm of salvation under the rule and the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, Nicodemus and his colleagues thought that simply being descendants of Abraham was enough, or keeping the law was enough. Their tradition, having a religious heritage, is what it took to be made citizens of God's kingdom. And Jesus makes it clear that they were dead wrong. Again, one writer explains it this way, the implication of Jesus' words for Nicodemus were staggering. All of his life, He had diligently observed the law and the rituals of Judaism. He had joined the ultra-religious Pharisees and even become a member of the Sanhedrin. Now Jesus was calling him to forsake all of that and start over. You tell me how you would struggle with that. To abandon the entire system of works righteousness in which he had placed his hope to realize that human effort was not only weak, but powerless to save. Now this really does speak to the reality of our religious sensitivities today too, doesn't it? Let's not look at Nicodemus and think that he was unique here. I mean, we live in the American South. And I'm not being ugly. I like the American South. I figured out a couple years ago, I've actually lived more of my life in the South than I ever did in the North. Can I be called a Southerner yet? No? No, not to, pe- not to you people with deep roots. I like, I mean, I don't drink sweet tea enough. We live in the American South. We're going to church, or at least identifying with a church, is just part of who we are. We hunt. We fish. We watch football. And we go to such and such church down the street. In fact, many of us would even say, my dad or my grandfather was a preacher. 
I've heard that many, many times. There used to be something like 800,000 preachers in the South. Because I hear it all the time. Now, I would not presume to judge the motives of every churchgoer in the Bible Belt. That would be foolish. Nor would I presume to condemn anyone for hunting, fishing, or watching football. But I do fear that there is an easy tendency for us to approach our spiritual lives much like Nicodemus did. To think that we are right with God because Christianity has been part of our culture. Or because we do these good things. We go to church, we give money, we're all around good people, or we, you know, this or that, or whatever it is. And that we somehow are right with God because we have been this way or we have done these things. And the first three verses of John 3 are crucial because they teach us our natural state. We are not generally good people in our sin, on our own. In our natural state, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, the best among us. And that also means that any good thing that we do in that state is still a dead work. It has no connection whatsoever to spiritual life. We are completely lost and helpless. Every part of our being is touched by the effects of sin and its consequences. No, we are not all as bad as we could be. But we are all bad to the core of our being. In theological terms, we call that radical depravity or even total inability. And we must recognize our total depravity, our utter poverty of spirit, and understand that our hope rests in nothing that I can do, but only in the work of someone else. And Jesus is teaching that in order to be saved, we must be not helped, not fixed, not boosted along, not informed, not better educated. We must be reborn, recreated, regenerated. We must be given a new nature, a new life, a new heart. This is not something man can do by his own will. John says that in chapter 1, verse 13. But rather, this is something that only God can do. And so I'll pause and ask the question. I know you're all here today. And as far as I can tell, you're all decently good people. But have you been born again? Have you been born again? Well, as I've already said, this comes as quite a shock to Nicodemus. Because it flies in the face of his entire religious system, his entire spiritual worldview. And unfortunately, I think it flies in the face of our worldview today. Many of us. Including some who call themselves Christians. There simply is no basis for any claim that man is basically good and that he naturally seeks after God. This is where the counsel I was listening to the other day really went wrong. Because it is built on this idea that mankind is generally good, and we just need to find ways to bring it out, and that bad is a reality, but we just need to find some kind of balance in it all and navigate, and it's all about what I do and what I do and what I do and what I do to bring out the best of me and the best of me and the best of me and help it not conflict with you and you and you. And Jesus is torching that whole philosophy when he says you must be born again. And this is a shock to Nicodemus. It's a shock to many today. It is a revolutionary thought because it is not simply a new set of facts. It is not even a complete recalibration of our thinking. It is a total transformation. It is a completely new birth. Now, I know that may all sound very negative. I don't want you walking away from here saying, oh, the preacher's just, you're bad, 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 bad. You wicked, awful people, and I hate you all. No, that's not what this is about. It wasn't that way for Jesus. 
It never was. Jesus is intent on bringing us to a realization of our fundamental problem and our fundamental need so that now when he gives the solution and he explains where to go from here, we catch the glory and the greatness of the gospel. And so really, it may sound negative at first, but this truth is really, really good news. And here's what I mean. Follow my weird way of thinking about this for a moment. If the preeminent religious teacher of, is of Israel or any society like Nicodemus with all of his spiritual credentials and all of his knowledge and all of his morality, if he could not enter the kingdom of God, then certainly none of us can. And you say, how's that good news? Because Jesus is talking about entering into the kingdom. And if none of us can do it on our own, then it must mean salvation does not in any way depend on our works and our accomplishments. So quit trying. Thank God for grace and mercy. Salvation is available and it is possible for hopeless people like you and me. Why? Because it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is what Jesus is leading us to see in this text. So that brings us to the next section of the text, verses 4 through 7. We've seen the state of the sinner. Now let's consider the teaching of the Savior. You say, well, he's already been teaching. I know. Just follow the train of thought. This is where Jesus begins to get into more about the need to be born again and how being born again happens. So verse 4, Nicodemus says to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And we're like, uh, really? You're asking that? He's not mocking Jesus. He's sort of following the train of thought. Okay, Jesus, you use the imagery. I'll play along. What is that getting at? What are you talking about? As a teacher himself, Nicodemus knew tactics like this well. He's throwing out an image. He's playing along. And I think Nicodemus might understand a little bit more than we might want to give him credit for here. I think he knows Jesus just read his heart regarding salvation and, and that Jesus just told him he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven based on any of his credentials that he has acquired over the years. I think Nicodemus is understanding that. And his question here sort of suggests that, but it's as if he's looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, that's impossible. The salvation you are describing is impossible. Do you think he got it? Is that what Jesus is saying? Yes. Yes. Salvation is entirely impossible the way that he has been looking at it. That doesn't compute with Nicodemus. He's struggling with that because it flies in the face of everything he's been taught his whole life. He has spent his whole life working for salvation, and now for the first time he's being introduced to grace and his desperate need for it. And that, even in our modern day, this is why the doctrines of grace are often so difficult for people to accept. Because we have a hard time with this concept of just quit trying to earn God's favor. But really, Nicodemus should have known this all along. After all, he is the eminent teacher in Israel. He is the eminent scholar of the Old Testament. Jesus calls him in verse 10, the, the teacher of Israel, and he rebukes him for not understanding these things. He is an Old Testament scholar, and what Jesus is teaching here is all over the Old Testament. Salvation in the Old Testament is the same as it is in the New Testament, because it's the same God. And it's the same Savior. And what he is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, has been the basis for salvation from the beginning. So Jesus gives him no excuse. He's pressing him hard, but he does give him some help. He rebukes him, but he's also leading him along. Jesus is so patient, isn't he? And he is so patient with us, isn't he? He rebukes him, but yet he's teaching him the truth to save him. So verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus meant there. Uh, that phrase, 
what is meant by that phrase, born of water and the Spirit. Some have said it refers to physical birth and spiritual birth. Um, I'm not convinced that that's the case because I don't think Nicodemus would have thought of physical birth as being born of water. Um, and also, I don't think Jesus would be making the point that in order to have eternal life, you have to be born. Uh, that kind of goes without saying, right? That's like, you don't need to go there with the eminent teacher of Israel. Others have said that this refers to baptism. But again, I'm not sure that can be the case because I don't think Nicodemus would have yet understood Christian baptism because that comes later. Um, so what do we make of this when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit? Well, remember this, that what Jesus is saying is intended to jog Nicodemus's memory and point him to what he should have known from the Old Testament. And these terms, water and spirit, are not contrasting words, but are working together in the Old Testament to restate what, what it means to be born again. So when the, when the Old Testament uses these words, they refer to spiritual renewal and cleansing. For instance, a key passage that probably came to mind for Nicodemus would have been Ezekiel 36, where God promises to cleanse Israel and give them his spirit. In several other passages, such as Ezekiel 11, or Jeremiah 24, or Jeremiah 31, or Psalm 51, and more, God speaks of cleansing his people and sending them his spirit. This is where Nicodemus' mind should have gone when Jesus spoke of being born of water and the spirit. He's speaking of internal cleansing, inward cleansing and purity, giving his people a new heart and changing their affections. And all of it, again, there is an emphasis on the fact that God must do this. You can cleanse the outside, but only God can cleanse the inside. And so what Jesus is saying here is your salvation, your attachment to Jesus, the gospel is not just about you getting a certificate of completion. Well, I went through, I ticked these boxes, and now I've got Jesus. Or a badge that you wear on your shirt. It is a completely new life. It is a complete renewal. It is a sovereign act of God alone, and that is a part that they missed in all of the Jewish system. And then in verse 6, Jesus gives another hint that continues to direct Nicodemus' thinking and clarify his point. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, all that flesh can produce is flesh. Here he's sort of explaining the doctrine of sin. You are flesh. All you can produce is flesh. Only the Spirit can produce what is spirit. Again, he's highlighting the depravity of, of the human heart. He's highlighting his inability and unwillingness to be saved. And this is all over the New Testament or the Old Testament. Again, Genesis 6, when God is getting ready to destroy the earth, we see that man's problem is what? The heart. In Job 14 and Job 15 and Job 25, the question is asked, who can make the heart of man clean? That is what we need. In Psalm 51, David affirms that he was conceived and born in sin. That is my problem. Isaiah 64, 6 declares that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. That even on our best day in the flesh, we cannot please God. Because the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes several Old Testament passages to define the sinfulness of man's heart and to show that there is none who escapes that sinfulness. There is none righteous, no, not one, no one who seeks after God. And so in summary, the Old Testament clearly teaches that salvation is an act of God and that by His sovereign grace alone, not dependent on any act of man, we find salvation. Man's problem is deep-rooted, utter depravity of heart. And it makes us unable to save ourselves. It makes us, frankly, uneven, even to, unable even to want to. And so we need a complete spiritual renewal. We need a new life, a total transformation. We need to be washed. We need to be purified, cleansed by God himself from the inside out. We need a new heart. We need a new spirit. 
We need the Holy Spirit because we cannot do any of this ourselves. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is looking for salvation in all the wrong places, as are countless millions today. Jesus is undercutting an entire religious system and worldview, and he is showing him the true path to eternal life. In verse 7, Jesus speaks directly to Nicodemus, and he appeals to him based on all that he's said already. Do not marvel that I said to you, and I'll say it again, you must be born again. He doubles down on this. All roads do not lead to heaven. There is a narrow way, and few find it. It is the way of Christ and the cross, and it is only there that you will be born again. Do not be surprised, Jesus says, you must be born again. He is calling Nicodemus to be done with all of his self-effort and to look to Christ alone, by faith alone. And so moving on then into verses 8 and 9. Jesus gives another analogy, this time shifting the focus from the inability of man now to the power and work of God. That's our third point, the work of the Spirit. Back in verse 6, Jesus said, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. In other words, salvation is a work that only the Spirit of God can do. Only the Spirit can change a person's heart. Otherwise, man would never and could never be saved. Salvation is a work of God through and through, through His Spirit, from beginning to end. And now in verse 8, here's another analogy regarding the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a lot we could say about that. We can't say it all today. In the context, what's going on here? It's a little play on words. The Greek word for spirit and the Greek word for wind are the same word. So Jesus is drawing a comparison. What can you do to control the wind? Nothing. All you can do is see its effects. The wind itself is invisible. It's uncontrollable. It's irresistible. It cannot be summoned or dismissed at will. It is not subject to our desires, and there is no how-to book on roping the wind. So it is with the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus is again making the point that salvation is God's work alone, not man's work. John 5.21 tells us that God gives life to whomever he will, and that is that. The Holy Spirit is not impressed by our good works. If we are to be saved, it must be by the drawing and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit alone. Now, Nicodemus can't quite wrap his mind around all of this, but I think he's starting to get it more than even he realizes, because in verse 9, he cries out, how can these things be? It's almost like Jesus wants to say, that's the point. Now you're starting to get it. This is so new to his thinking. It's taking him a while to, to wrap his mind around what Jesus is saying. But man, look at the patience of Christ. Right? Eventually, Nicodemus will believe. He's not there yet. But Jesus is laying the groundwork. Now, in the same way, there is a lot here for us to process. Especially for those who are coming from a background of man-centered ministry and works-centered religion. And many of you can say that's the background you've come from in one way or, or another. Now, if we're not careful here, we can misrepresent a passage like this one by concluding or accusing it of teaching a sort of fatalistic view of salvation or, uh, in, or getting off the rails into one extreme or another. One way would be to drift off into legalism and the assumption that our works save. The other side is license concluding from a passage like this that works don't matter at all to God on either side of salvation, and therefore it doesn't matter how I live, because after all, Jesus accomplished it for me anyway. We must watch out for both of those errors. That is what Jesus teaches here. But so often we want to reduce salvation or evangelism in the Christian life to a process or to a checklist, don't we? Oh, I only sinned this many times today. 
or I've done this thing, or, oh, i got to make sure I get into church today, or, oh, I better make send in my tithe check, or, oh, I better do this, or, oh, I better do that, or, oh, no, I've missed three days of my Bible reading plan. I better repent of my sin, and, and now I have to read double for it. And we, we get into this, this routine. Like Nicodemus, we tend to measure ourselves by our own performance. And what that does is it makes secure saints anxious and it makes unbelievers comfortable. And it should be the other way around. And we often compare ourselves among ourselves and think that we're doing pretty good because after all, we're better than the person we're sitting next to. Or we're better than our neighbor. I don't participate in those things. Or I do this. Next thing we know, we're judging our standing before God in the same way Nicodemus was trying to judge his. This passage presents to us the biblical truth that our salvation and our standing before God are not dependent on our works, but are a work of God alone. A work of God, by the way, that He offers to you. So as we close, I want to just bring it home with uh, three simple summary applications. First of all, Christians, find your assurance of your salvation in your present faith, not in past performance. Find your assurance of salvation in your present faith and not in past performance. On what are you basing your salvation right now? Do you, do you trust in some past action? Some prayer that you prayed years ago? Some aisle that you walked? some moment in your life when you were zealous about Christ and you think that that's carrying over just because you were doing good things at one point. If you want to, to assess where you stand with the Lord, look at your present state. Look at where your faith is right now. Consider where you are. Christians' works certainly are important, but they are not what gives us, gets us acceptance with God. Works are the outflow of the life we've already received in Christ. Assurance of salvation is not based on our performance, but on our standing before God in the righteousness of Christ. Again, are you born again? Secondly, Christians, in your efforts to reach the lost, recognize that it takes time for people to get this. It took time for you. It took time for Nicodemus. It is a rare instance that any unbeliever believes after the first conversation. So be patient. Speak the truth. Urge a response, but do not manipulate for a decision. Let the Spirit do His work. And finally, if you're not a Christian, if you have never come to a place of yielding your life wholly and entirely, to the Lord Jesus Christ as your hope for salvation, then I urge you today to believe in Him, to acknowledge that you are lost, to acknowledge that, that your problem is not that you have made it most of the way and just need a little bit of help. Your problem is not that your works haven't been good enough. Your problem is not that that. You just need some more knowledge or some, you just, well, I just need to get back in church for a little bit more. I just need to do this better. I need to stop. No, that is not your problem. Your problem is you are dead, completely unresponsive. And what you need is new life. And that new life is, is available and offered to you in Jesus Christ by faith. God has provided salvation for you. And he calls you to respond by turning away from your sin, by turning away from your self-efforts and yielding to Christ as your Savior and Lord. You need to recognize that God owns you 
and you answer to him. And because of your sin, you are separated from him. But through Christ, you can be reconciled to God. You can have new life. You can be born again. And what he calls you to do, simply call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't wait. Don't resist. You must be reconciled to God. You must be born again. There is no greater need, my friends. And like Paul, I cry out to you, be reconciled to God. What do we take away from John 3? We are great sinners. Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would dig it deep into the hearts of all who hear this morning. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to peace with God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.